Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 540. Yes, now. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by you. Thank you. Well, hello. How are you? I am well. I am also sneezing like a crazy person because allergies. Yeah. So, you know I'm happy. Hey, at least it's not mosquito bites. So, you know, small favors. I appreciate it. But who boy, do I have the episode y'all been waiting for, for a good long time. For actually a couple of different reasons. One is Helen. Two is Ireland. I'm going to talk about Ireland first. So if you are on Ravelry, on Facebook, on our annotated audiobook Craftlet group, which you are more than welcome to join. It is currently the only place I go to on social media with any regularity at all. If you've been on either of those places, you have probably seen the announcements that yes, we do have a Craftlet tour happening. Yes, it is happening next October. So one year. And yes, it is awesome and planned for you by the fabulous Diane, which means it will not only live up to, but it will surpass the previous tour. As always happens, she just finds ways to do more and better for all of us. So I am going to do what I did with the Paris trip. And every week I will have a little highlight of the next part of the trip, which means you will have a virtual tour here on Craftlet. Where are we going to go in Ireland? I know you're wondering. We're going to stay from the mid to the north because there are only so many miles one can travel when there is so much spectacularness within a stone's throw of oneself in the course of a fabulous 10-day trip. We will begin and end in Dublin. And from Dublin, where we will see the Book of Kells and visit St. Patrick's Cathedral, we'll go on to see where Patrick Bronte came from. I know, we get a little Bronte action in there. And also get to go to the Linen Center and Museum. We'll go on to Belfast. We'll go to see Giant's Causeway and Derry. We will check out the Ulster American Folk Park, which is so cool. That night we stay in Donegal. And then we go on to the Carrickmacross Lace Gallery. And we tour around some more. And come back to Dublin have some time to explore. That's the other thing that Diane does that's so awesome is she builds in time when we get to someplace new where we can just have some downtime. And if you want to go wander, you get to go wander. And if you want to do something else with other people, you can do something else with other people. There is no shaming on our trips (laughs) for wanting to go off and, you know, have some you time because we are us and we understand. It's just one of the many benefits of traveling with Craftlet. It makes me so happy. I'm so excited. 
So I will be taking each one of these days and explaining them in more detail, and I will be working on my Irish pronunciation, so please correct me when I get it wrong, because I know I will, because my Gaelic is just not that great yet. And also, Thing 2 will be traveling with us. This will be his graduation present as well. He will be next October at the beginning of his senior year. So it's kind of an early graduation present, but he is going to be doing it as an independent study because we're going to be seeing such amazing historic and literary and art related sites and nifty bits. And he is very much the history, literature, and art guy. And I know you're just completely shocked. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So since this punk started his craftlet journey when he was two and a half, I'm sure you're shocked, shocked and appalled to find out that he likes art, literature, and history. Yeah. Anyway, he is very, very looking forward to getting a chance to meet you as well. So yay. Now, how do you get to join us on this trip? I hear you ask. Here's the secret. For a very small $200 deposit right now, you can save a space. And let me tell you, with the world being the way the world is being right now, this kind of matters more than it ever has before because we have a truly limited number of spaces now on the coach. And we have already gotten more than half of those spaces reserved. So if you are interested, fully refundable $200 deposit saves you a space. You have until June 29th, 2021 to finish paying for your space on the trip. So that gives you some time. It gets you peace of mind that space is reserved for you to join us. And if you want more information, you can call 888-554-5208. Anyone on that phone line can help you. And let me tell you, Diane texted me and said, Craftlit people have made everyone at Holiday Travel so happy because they finally have phone calls to answer. I know. So think about it. You will make not only yourself happy, you will make other people happy too. Now you can get the travel brochure with all of the details on it if you go to holidayvacations.com. And then there's an option to search for a keyword, and the keyword would be craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word. And one of the nifty things you'll see on the website and also indicated on the brochure itself, which is printoutable so that you can have a paper copy should you so desire, is there's an activity guide. There's a little activity monitor, and it has a an index that goes from purple, not very active, all the way up to orange, quite active. We are in the yellow zone. We are not so active that you're going to feel like you're going to collapse every night, but active enough that you will be able to eat without really feeling horrible about it. Not ravenous, but also not so much the guilty thing. It's good. It's really good. Because as always, the Eatons are fabulous with Diane. 
There are 12 meals that are included with the trip. When a meal isn't included, we absolutely always have time to get a nice meal, sit, chat, have a nice time. All accommodations are paid for. All airfare is paid for if you are traveling from somewhere that requires airfare. There is also a land-only price. So if you are in or near Ireland and want to get there on your own and meet up with us in Dublin, that price is available for you as well. I am so excited. I can't wait for you to join us. We are going to have so much fun. And next week, I will talk us through in more detail day one. All right. Once again, 888-554-5208 is the number to call to reserve your space. $200 is all it takes. Fully refundable should something go sideways for you. It happens. But either way, that slot will be reserved for you, which is, like I said, super important because the space is limited and already more than half gone. Very exciting. Please join me. (laughs) All right. And now we leave Ireland for a moment to go and check in with Helen. Things have been tense for our heroine. Yes, indeed. And things have been really lousy. I shouldn't say tense. Things have been really lousy for this woman. She has had more than her share of lame people to put up with. Today is the day you have waited for. I am not going to say anything else, literally anything else, except let's listen to chapters 43 and 44 of The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte, read for us by Mia Daguerre. Chapter 43, The Boundary Past. October 10th. Mr. Huntington returned about three weeks ago. His appearance, his demeanour and conversation and my feelings with regard to him I shall not trouble myself to describe. The day after his arrival, however, he surprised me by the announcement of an intention to procure a governess for little Arthur. I told him it was quite unnecessary, not to say ridiculous at the present season. I thought I was fully competent to the task of teaching him myself for some years to come at least. The child's education was the only pleasure and business of my life, and since he had deprived me of every other occupation, he might surely leave me that. He said I was not fit to teach children or to be with them. I had already reduced the boy to little better than an automaton. I had broken his fine spirit with my rigid severity and I should freeze all the sunshine out of his heart and make him as gloomy and ascetic as myself if I had the handling of him much longer. And poor Rachel too came in for her share of abuse, as usual. He cannot endure Rachel because he knows she has proper appreciation of him. I calmly defended our several qualifications as nurse and governess and still resisted the proposed addition to our family, but he cut me short by saying it was no use bothering him about the matter for he had engaged a governess already and she was coming next week, so that all I had to do was to get things ready for her reception. This was a rather startling piece of intelligence. I ventured to inquire her name and address, by whom she'd been recommended or how he'd been led to make choice of her. She is a very estimable, pious young person, said he. You needn't be afraid. Her name is Myers, I believe, and she was recommended to me by a respectable old dowager. 
a lady of high repute in the religious world. I've not seen her myself and therefore cannot give you a particular account of her person and conversation or so forth. But if the old lady's eulogies are correct, you'll find her to possess all the desirable qualifications for her position and inordinate love of children among the rest. All this was gravely and quietly spoken, but there was a laughing demon in his half-averted eye that boded no good, I imagined. However, I thought of my asylum in Yorkshire and made no further objections. When Miss Myers arrived, I was not prepared to give her a very cordial reception. Her appearance was not particularly calculated to produce a favourable impression at first sight, nor did her manners and subsequent conduct in any degree remove the prejudice I had already conceived against her. Her attainments were limited, her intellect no ways above mediocrity. She had a fine voice and could sing like a nightingale, and accompany herself as sufficiently well on the piano, but these were her only accomplishments. There was a look of guile and subtlety in her face, a sound of it in her voice. She seemed afraid of me, and would start if I suddenly approached her. In her behaviour she was respectful and complacent even to civility. She attempted to flatter and form upon me at first, but I soon checked that. Her fondness for her little pupil was overstrained, and I was obliged to remonstrate with her on the subject of overindulgence and injudicious praise, but she could not gain his heart. Her piety consisted in an occasional heaving of sighs and uplifting of eyes to the ceiling, and the utterance of a few cant phrases. She told me she was a clergyman's daughter and had been left an orphan from her childhood, but had had the good fortune to obtain a situation in a very pious family, and then spoke so gratefully of the kindness she had experienced from its different members that I reproached myself for my uncharitable thoughts and unfriendly conduct, and relented for a time, but not for long. My cause of dislike were too rational, my suspicions too well founded for that, and I knew it was my duty to watch and scrutinise till those suspicions were either satisfactorily removed or confirmed. I asked the name and residence of the kind and pious family. She mentioned a common name and an unknown and distant place of abode, but told me they were now on the continent, and their present address was unknown to her. I never saw her speak much to Mr Huntington, but he would frequently look in on the schoolroom to see how little Arthur got on with his new companion when I was not there. In the evening, she sat with us in the drawing-room and would sing and play to amuse him, or us, as she pretended, and was very attentive to his wants and watchful to anticipate them, though she only talked to me. Indeed, he was seldom in a condition to be talked to. Had she been other than she was, I should have felt her present a great relief to come between us thus, except, indeed, that I should have been thoroughly ashamed for any decent person to see him as he often was. I did not mention my suspicions to Rachel, but she, having sojourned for half a century in this land of sin and sorrow, has learned to be suspicious herself. She told me from the first she was down of that new governess, and I soon found that she watched her quite as narrowly as I did, and I was glad of it, for I longed to know the truth. The atmosphere of Brassdale seemed to stifle me, and I could only live by thinking of Wildfeld Hall. At last, one morning, she entered my chamber with such intelligence that my resolution was taken before she had ceased to speak. While she dressed me, I explained to her my intentions and what assistance I should require from her, and told her which of my things she was to pack and which she was to leave behind for herself, as I had no other means of recompensing her for this sudden dismissal after a long and faithful service, 
a circumstance I most deeply regretted but could not avoid. "'And what will you do, Rachel?' said I. "'Will you go home or seek another place?' "'I have no home, ma'am, but with you,' she replied. "'And if I leave you, I'll never go into a place again, as long as I live.' "'But I can't afford to live like a lady now,' returned I. "'I must be my own maid and my child's nurse.' "'What signifies?' she replied she in some excitement. "'You'll want somebody to clean and wash and cook, won't you? "'I can do all that and never mind the wages. "'I've my bits of saving yet, and if you wouldn't take me, "'I should have to find my own board and lodgings out of them somewhere "'or else work among strangers, and it's what I'm not used to. "'So you can please yourself, ma'am.' "'Her voice quavered as she spoke, and the tears stood in her eyes.' "'I should like it above all things, Rachel, "'and I'd give you such wages as I could afford, "'such as I should give any servant of all work I might employ. "'But don't you see I should be dragging you down with me "'when you've done nothing to deserve it?' "'Oh, fiddle!' ejaculated she. "'And besides, my future way of living will be so wildly different to the past, "'so different to all you've become accustomed to. "'Do you think, ma'am, I can't bear what my missus can?' "'Surely I'm not so proud and so dainty as that comes to. "'And my little master too, God bless him.' "'But I'm young, Rachel, I shan't mind it. "'And Arthur's young too, it will be nothing to him. "'Nor me either. "'I'm not so old, but what I can stand hard fare to hard work "'if it's only to help and comfort them as I've loved like my own barns. "'For all, I'm too old to buy thoughts of leaving them "'and trouble and danger and going amongst strangers myself.' "'Then you shan't, Rachel.' cried I, embracing my faithful friend. We'll all go together, and you'll see how the new life suits you. Bless you, honey, cried she affectionately, returning my embrace. Only let us get shut of this wicked house, and we'll do right enough, you'll see. So think I, was my answer, and so that point was settled. By that morning's post I dispatched a few hasty lines to Frederick, beseeching him to prepare my asylum for my immediate reception, I should probably come to claim it within the day after the receipt of that note, and telling him in a few words the cause of my sudden resolution. Then I wrote three letters of adieu. The first to Esther Hargrave, in which I told her that I found it impossible to stay any longer at Grassdale, or to leave my son under his father's protection, and as it was of the last importance that our future abode should be unknown to him and his acquaintance, I should disclose it to no one but my brother, through the medium of whom I hope still to correspond with my friends, and then I gave her his address, exhorted her to write frequently, reiterated some of my former admonitions regarding her own concerns, and bade her a fond farewell. The second was to Millicent, much to the same effect, but a little more confidential, as befitted our longer intimacy, and her greater experience and better acquaintance with my circumstances. The third was to my aunt, a much more difficult and painful undertaking, and therefore I had left it to the last. But I must give her some explanation of that extraordinary step I had taken, and that quickly, for she and my uncle would no doubt hear of it within a day or two after my disappearance, as it was probable that Mr Huntington would speedily apply to them to know what was become of me. At last, however, I told her I was sensible of my error. I did not complain of its punishment, and I was sorry to trouble my friends with its consequences. But in duty to my son, I must submit no longer. It was absolutely necessary that he should be delivered from his father's corrupting influence. 
I should not disclose my place of refuge, even to her, in order that she and my uncle might be able, with truth, to deny all knowledge concerning it, but any communications addressed to me under cover of my brother would certainly reach me. I hoped she and my uncle would pardon the step I had taken, for if they knew it all I was sure they would not blame me, and I trusted they would not afflict themselves on my account, for if I could only reach my retreat in safety and keep it unmolested, I should be very happy, but for the thoughts of them, and should be quite contented to spend my life in obscurity, devoting myself to the training up of my child and teaching him to avoid the errors of both his parents. These things were done yesterday. I have given two whole days to the preparation for our departure, that Frederick may have more time to prepare the rooms and Rachel to pack up the things, for the latter task must be done with the utmost caution and secrecy, and there is no one but me to assist her. I can help her get the articles together, but I do not understand the art of stowing them into the boxes so as to take up the smallest possible space, and they are her own things to do as well as mine and Arthur's. I can ill afford to leave anything behind, since I have no money except a few guineas in my own purse, and besides, as Rachel observed, whatever I left would most likely become the property of Miss Myers, and I should not relish that. But what trouble I have throughout these two days, struggling to appear calm and collected, to meet him and her as usual when I was obliged to meet them, and forcing myself to leave my little Arthur in her hands for hours together. But I trust these trials are over now. I have laid him in my bed for better security, and never more, I trust, shall his innocent lips be defiled by their contaminating kisses, or young ears polluted by their words. But shall I escape in safety? Oh, that this morning were come, and we were on our way at least. This evening, when I given Rachel all the assistance I could, and had nothing left but me but to wait and wish and tremble, I became so greatly agitated that I knew not what to do. I went down to dinner, but I could not force myself to eat. Mr Huntington remarked the circumstances. "'What's to do with you now?' said he, when the removal of the second course gave him time to look about him. "'I'm not well,' I replied. "'I think I must lie down a little. You won't miss me much.' "'Not in the least. If you leave your chair it'll do just as well. Better a trifle,' he muttered as I left the room, "'for I can fancy somebody else fills it.' "'Someone else may fill it tomorrow,' I thought, but I did not say. "'There!' I've seen the last of you, I hope, I muttered as I closed the door upon him. Rachel urged me to seek repose at once, to recruit my strength for tomorrow's journey, as we must be gone before the dawn. But in my present state of nervous excitement, that was entirely out of the question. It was equally out of the question to sit or wander about my room, counting the hours and the minutes between me and the appointed time of action, straining my ears and trembling at every sound lest someone should discover and betray us after all. I took up a book and tried to read. My eyes wandered over the pages, but it was impossible to bind my thoughts at their contents. Why not have recourse to the old expedient and add this last event to my chronicle? I opened its pages once more and wrote the above account with difficulty at first, but gradually my mind became more calm and steady. Thus several hours have passed away. The time is drawing near, and now I feel my eyes heavy and my frame exhausted. I will commend my cause to God, and then lie down and gain an hour or two of sleep. And then... Little Arthur sleeps soundly. All the house is still. There can be no one watching. 
The boxes were all corded by Benson and quietly conveyed down the back stairs after dusk and sent away in a cart to the coach office. The name upon the cards was Mrs Graham, which appellation I mean henceforth to adopt. My mother's maiden name was Graham, and therefore I fancy I have some claim to it, and prefer it to any other except my own, which I dare not resume. Chapter 44. The Retreat October 24th. Thank heaven I am free and safe at last. Early we rose, swiftly and quietly dressed, slowly and stealthily descended to the hall, where Benson stood ready with a light to open the door and fasten it after us. We were obliged to let one man into our secret on account of the boxes, etc., all the servants were but too well acquainted with their master's conduct, and either Benson or John would have been willing to serve me, but as the former was more staid and elderly, and a crony of Rachel's besides, I of course directed her to make the choice of him as her assistant and confidant on the occasion, as far as necessity demanded. I only hope he may not be brought to trouble thereby, and I only wish I could reward him for the perilous service he was so ready to undertake." I slipped two guineas into his hand by way of remembrance as he stood in the doorway holding the candle to light our departure, with a tear in his honest grey eye and a host of good wishes depicted on his solemn countenance. Alas, I could offer no more. I had barely sufficient remaining for the probable expenses of the journey. What trembling joy it was when the little wicket closed behind us as we issued from the park. Then, for one moment, I paused to inhale one draught of that cool, bracing air and venture one look back upon the house. All was dark and still, no light glimmered in the windows, no wreath of smoke obscured the stars that sparkled above it in the frosty sky. As I bade farewell forever to that place, the scene of so much guilt and misery, I felt glad that I had not left it before, for now there was no doubt about the propriety of such a step. No shadow of remorse for him I left behind. There was nothing to disturb my joy but the fear of detection, and every step removed us farther from the chance of that. We had left Grassdale many miles behind us before the round red sun arose to welcome our deliverance, and if any inhabitant of its vicinity had chanced to see us then as we bowled along on the top of the coach, I scarcely think they would have suspected our identity. As I intended to be taken for a widow, I thought it advisable to enter my new abode in mourning. I was therefore attired in a plain black silk dress and mantle, a black veil, which I kept carefully over my face for the first twenty or thirty miles of the journey, and a black silk bonnet, which I had been constrained to borrow from Rachel for want of such an article myself. It was not the newest fashion, of course, but none the worse for that, under present circumstances." Arthur was clad in his plainest clothes and wrapped in a coarse woollen shawl, and Rachel was muffled in a grey cloak and hood that had seen better days and gave her more the appearance of an ordinary, though decent old woman, than of a lady's maid. Oh, what a delight it was to be thus seated aloft, rumbling along the broad, sunshiny road, with a fresh morning breeze in my face, surrounded by unknown country, all smiling, cheerfully, gloriously smiling in the yellow lustre of those early beams, with my darling child in my arms, almost as happy as myself and my faithful friend beside me, a prison and despair behind me, receding farther and farther back at every clatter of the horse's feet, and liberty and hope before. 
I could hardly refrain from praising God aloud for my deliverance or astonishing my fellow passengers by some surprising outburst of hilarity. But the journey was a very long one, and we were all weary enough before the close of it. It was far into the night when we reached the town of El, and still we were seven miles from our journey's end, and there was no more coaching nor any conveyance to be had except a common cart, and that with the greatest difficulty for half the town was in bed. And a dreary ride we had at that last stage of the journey, cold and weary as we were, sitting on our boxes with nothing to cling to, nothing to lean against, slowly dragged and crudely shaken over the rough hilly roads. But Arthur was asleep in Rachel's lap, and between us we managed pretty well to shield him from the cold night air. At last we began to ascend a terribly steep and stony lane, which in spite of the darkness Rachel said she remembered well. She had often walked there with me in her arms, and little thought to come again so many years after, into such circumstances as the present. Arthur, being now awakened by the jolting and stoppages, we all got out and walked. We had not far to go, but what if Frederick should not have received my letter, or if he should not have had time to prepare the rooms for our reception, and we should find them all dark, damp and comfortless, destitute of food, fire and furniture, after all our toil. At length the grim, dark pile appeared before us, the lane conducted us round the by the back way. We entered the desolate court and in breathless anxiety surveyed the ruinous mass. Was it all blackness and desolation? No, one faint red glimmer cheered us from a window where the lattice was in good repair. The door was fastened, but after Jude knocking and waiting and some parleying with a voice from an upper window, we were admitted by an old woman who had been commissioned to air and keep the house till our arrival, into a tolerably snug little apartment, formerly the scullery of the mansion, which Frederick has now fitted us as a kitchen. Here she procured us a light, roused the fire into a cheerful blaze, and soon prepared a simple repast for our refreshment, while we disencumbered ourselves from our travelling gear and took a hasty survey of our new abode. Besides the kitchen there were two bedrooms, a good-sized parlour and another smaller one which I destined for my studio, all well aired and seemingly in good repair, but only partly furnished with a few old articles, chiefly of ponderous black oak, the veritable ones that had been there before, and which had been kept as antiquarian relics in my brother's present residence, and now, in all haste, transported back again. The old woman brought my supper and Arthur's into the parlour, and told me, with all due formality, that the master desired his compliments to Mrs Graham, and he had prepared the rooms as well as he could on such short notice, but he would do himself the pleasure of calling upon her tomorrow to receive further commands. I was glad to ascend the stern-looking stone staircase and lie down in the gloomy old-fashioned bed beside my little Arthur. He was asleep in a minute, but weary as I was, my excited feelings and restless cogitations kept me awake till dawn began to struggle with the darkness. But sleep was sweet and refreshing when it came, and the waking was delightful beyond expression. It was little Arthur that roused me with his gentle kisses. He was then safely clasped in my arms and many leagues away from his unworthy father. Broad daylight illuminated the apartment, for the sun was high in heaven, though obscured by rolling masses of autumnal vapour. The scene indeed was not remarkably cheerful in itself, either within or without. The large bare room with its grim old furniture, the narrow lattice windows revealing the dark grey sky above and the desolate wilderness below, 
where the dark stone walls and iron gate and rank growth of grass and weeds and the hardy evergreens of preternatural forms alone remain to tell that there had been once a garden, and the bleak and barren fields beyond might have struck me as gloomy enough at another time. But now each separate object seemed to echo back my own exhilarating sense of hope and freedom. Indefinite dreams of the far past and bright anticipations of the future seemed to greet me at every turn. I should rejoice with more security to be sure had the broad sea rolled between my present and my former homes. But surely in this lonely spot I might remain unknown, and then I had my brother here to cheer my solitude with his occasional visits. He came that morning, and I have had several interviews with him since, but he is obliged to be very cautious when and how he comes. Not even his servants or his best friends must know of his visits to Wildfeld, except on such occasions as a landlord might be expected to call upon a stranger tenant, lest suspicion should be excited against me, whether of the truth or some slanderous falsehood. I have now been here nearly a fortnight, and but for one disturbing care, the haunted dread of discovery, I am comfortably settled in my new home. Frederick has supplied me with all the requisite furniture and painting materials. Rachel has sold most of my clothes for me in a distant town and procured me a wardrobe more suitable to my present position. I have a second-hand piano and a tolerably well-stocked bookcase in my parlour, and my other room has assumed quite a professional business-like appearance already. I'm working hard to repay my brother for all his expenses on my account. Not that there is the slightest necessity for anything of the kind, but it pleases me to do so. I shall have so much more pleasure in my labour and my earnings, my frugal fare and household economy when I know I am paying my way honestly, and that what little I possess is legitimately all my own, and that no one suffers for my folly, in a pecuniary way at least. I shall make him take the last penny I owe him if I can possibly affect it without offending him too deeply. I had a few pictures already done, for I told Rachel to pack up all I had, and she executed her commission but too well, for among the rest she put up a portrait of Mr Huntington that I had painted in the first year of my marriage. It struck me with dismay at the moment when I took it from the box and beheld those eyes fixed upon me in their mocking mirth, as if exulting still in his power to control my fate and deriding my efforts to escape. How wildly different had been my feelings in painting that portrait to what they were now in looking upon it. How I had studied and toiled to produce something as I thought worthy of the original. What mingled pleasure and dissatisfaction I had had in the result of my labours. Pleasure for the likeness I had caught. Dissatisfaction because I had not made it handsome enough. Now I see no beauty in it. Nothing pleasing in any part of its expression. And yet it's far handsomer and more agreeable. Far less repulsive, I should rather say, than he is now for these six years have wrought amongst a greater change upon himself as of my feelings regarding him. The frame, however, is handsome enough and will serve for another painting. The picture itself I have not destroyed, as I had first intended. I have put it aside, not, I think, from any lurking tenderness for the memory of past affection, nor yet to remind me of my former folly, but chiefly that I may compare my son's features and countenance with this as he grows up, and thus be able to judge how much or how little he resembles his father, if I may be allowed to keep him with me still and never behold that father's face again, a blessing I hardly dare reckon on. It seems Mr Huntington is making every exertion to discover the place of my retreat. He has been in person to Stanningley, 
seeking redress for his grievances, expecting to hear of his victims, if not to find them there, and has told so many lies with such unblushing coolness that my uncle more than half believes him and strongly advocates my going back to him and being friends again. But my aunt knows better. She is too cool and cautious and too well acquainted with both my husband's character and my own to be imposed upon by any specious falsehoods the former could invent. But he does not want me back. He wants my child and gives my friends to understand that if I prefer living apart from him, he will indulge the women let me do so and molested, and even settle a reasonable allowance upon me, provided I will immediately deliver up his son. But heaven help me, I am not going to sell my child for gold, although it would save both him and me from starving. It will be better that he should die with me than he should live with his father. Frederick showed me a letter he had received from that gentleman, full of cool impudence such as would astonish anyone who did not know him, but such as, I am convinced, none would know better how to answer than my brother. He gave me no account of his reply, except to tell me that he had not acknowledged his acquaintance with my place of refuge, but rather left it to be inferred that it was quite unknown to him, by saying it was useless to apply to him or any other of my relations for information on the subject, as it appeared I had been driven to such extremity that I had concealed my retreat even from my best friends, but that if he had known it, or should at any time be made aware of it, most certainly Mr Huntington would be the last person he should communicate the intelligence, and that he need not trouble himself to bargain for the child, for he, Frederick, fancied he knew enough of his sister to enable him to declare that wherever she may be, or however situated, no consideration would induce her to deliver him up. 30th. Alas, my kind neighbours will not let me alone. By some means they have ferreted me out, and I have to sustain visits from three different families, all more or less bent on discovering who and what I am, whence I came, and why I have chosen such a home as this. Their society is unnecessary to me, to say the least, and their curiosity annoys and alarms me. If I gratify it, it may lead to the ruin of my son, and if I'm too mysterious, it will only excite their suspicions, invite their conjecture and rouse them to greater exertions, and perhaps be the means of spreading my fame from parish to parish till it reach the ears of someone who will carry it to the Lord of Grasdale Manor. I shall be expected to return their calls, but if upon inquiry I find that any of them live too far away for Arthur to accompany me, they must expect in vain for a while, for I cannot bear to leave him unless it be to go to church, and I have not attempted that yet, for it may be foolish weakness. But I am under such constant dread of his being snatched away that I am never easy when he is not by my side, and I feel these nervous terrors would so entirely disturb my devotions that I should obtain no benefit from the attendants. I mean, however, to make the experiment next Sunday and oblige myself to leave him in charge of Rachel for a few hours. It will be a hard task, but surely no imprudence, and the vicar has been to scold me for my neglect of the ordinance of religion. I had no sufficient excuse to offer, and I promised if all were well he should see me in my pew next Sunday, for I do not wish to be set down as an infidel, and besides I know I should derive great comfort and benefit from an occasional attendance at public worship. If only I could have faith and fortitude to compose my thoughts in conformity with a solemn occasion and forbid them to be forever dwelling on my absent child and on the dreadful possibility of finding him gone when I return. And surely God in his mercy will preserve me from so severe a trial. For my child's own sake, if not for mine, 
he will not suffer him to be torn away. November 3rd. I have made some further acquaintances with my neighbours. The fine gentleman and beau of the parish and its vicinity, in his own estimation at least, is a young... Here it ended. The rest was torn away. How cruel just when she was about to mention me. For I could no doubt it was your humble servant she was about to mention. Though not very favourably, of course. I could tell that by those few words, as by the recollection of her whole aspect and demeanour towards me in the commencement of our acquaintance. Well, I could readily forgive her prejudice against me, and her hard thoughts of our sex in general, when I saw too what brilliant specimens her experience had been limited. Respecting me, however, she had long since seen her error, and perhaps fallen into another in the opposite extreme. For if at first her opinion of me had been lower than I deserved, I was convinced that now my deserts were lower than her opinion. And if the former part of this continuation had been torn away to avoid wounding my feelings, Perhaps the latter portion had been removed for fear of ministering too much self-conceit. At any rate, I would have given much to have seen it all. To have witnessed a gradual change, and watched the progression of her esteem and friendship for me, and whatever warmer feeling she might have, to have seen how much love there was in her regard, and how it had grown upon her, in spite of her virtuous resolutions and strenuous exertions to... But no, I had no right to see it. All this was too sacred for any eyes but her own, and she had done well to keep it from me. Yes. <laughs> yes. All of the pieces have now fallen into place, as one would hope. Helen has arrived at Wildfell Hall. We now know that Mr. Lawrence, who when we last saw him in real time was not doing so well, Mr. Lawrence is her brother, and we're back with Gilbert. Gilbert has finished reading Helen's journal, and we are once again reminded that Gilbert is writing all of this, all of his portion of this, to a friend. I also think that perhaps all of our previous reactions to Gilbert, the, well, of course she loves me-ness of him previously, is in, in some way mitigated by Gilbert's reaction to actually seeing all of Helen's story. Now, as he's been telling this story to his friend, we can see that he was doing his best to be a reliable narrator in the beginning. and being pretty darn clear and open about his flaws and his foibles. Because now, as he said, when he's able to see the two fine specimens of men that she has been exposed to prior to meeting Gilbert and the people who live around him, it's easy to understand why Helen would be suspicious, standoffish, and not particularly interested in anybody. She is also, he now knows, quite clearly still married. And that's a tricky bit. So whereas before we had a chance to read Helen's journal with Gilbert and Gilbert's friend, before we thought we were reading a story about a kind of standoffish woman with a mystery, 
and a young guy who was a little too full of himself and a little too young. And that was pretty much it. We are now plunged deep into a much, much more complicated story because divorce is not an option. Helen cannot let her husband find out where she is. And as she has made clear, the more the people in the town find her mysterious and and therefore very interesting to talk about, the more likely it is that some news of her location will get back to her husband. And that's pretty dangerous because we already know that he has traveled to come find her. He has been unsuccessful so far, thank God. But he's not averse to coming and grabbing her physically and dragging her and their little boy back home. Which means Helen did a pretty ballsy thing right there because she really, really enfolded Gilbert into a series of confidences that he will be very unhappy to be part of in some ways, because now knowing the truth, he knows that she is completely unattainable. But also, should he muck this up and say the wrong thing to the wrong person, and there are several wrong people I can think of in town to say anything to, her life, certainly her happiness and her well-being, but her actual life could be at risk. So he's in a tricky bit of a situation now, too. And we have now no indication of what is coming next. Prior to this, when we were reading the journal, we knew where she was going to wind up. We did know she would get away because we've seen her away with Gilbert and everybody. But now it's like, it's like watching a, a DVR or, or TiVo'd show. We have caught up to real time <laughs> and we can't fast forward anymore. And now we just have to watch and see where Anne Bronte placed the chips as they fall. It's pretty good, right? Were you expecting this to be where it ended for our journal portion? <laughs> and bookmarks. We are going to have a bookmark exchange. Yes, for the holidays. I am so excited. I will have more actual information for you next week. But this came out of Jennifer and Tracy and some others at our wonderful Thursday night Zoom chat. Links to that can be found on the Facebook group. It's a pinned thingy, a pinned post <laughs> on the Facebook group. You can get the link there, put in your email address, and then you'll get the Zoom link for Thursday night. It's the same one every week. Anyway, they came up with this lovely idea of here we are, stuck, the world's weird, let's do something nice for each other. What could that be? I know, bookmarks, because we're bookish and we like crafty things. So you could buy one, sure, you can make one better, you can create whatever. We will handle the matching people with other people and give you an opportunity to do something nice and get something nice in return as well. There will be a form for you to fill out. So you'll enter your address and information, and then we'll be able to contact you directly. Well, Tracy, who is being a princess among women, she is going to find a way to connect you with each other. And then we can have some fun and share pictures and be happy. 
Yay. I'm very excited. So links will come next week and uh, more deets at that time as well. I hope you're excited too. All right. I'm going to let you go and you have a great week. Be well, wear a mask, take care of each other. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review over at iTunes. Join us on Facebook. Meet up with the knitters on Craftlet's Corner of Ravelry. Stay in the know on Instagram or add your name to our mailing list, which I promise will never spam you. In fact, you probably want to buy a lottery ticket on any day that you get a message from the Craftlet mailing list because that'll be a special day. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>